Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. I'm coming to you today from an apartment above a convenience store somewhere in the woodsy fringe of time and reason. Teleporting in from a dumpy little trailer in Deer Meadow, Oregon is EW senior writer and Harry Dean Stanton doppelganger, Darren Franich. Yes, we are talking about Twin Peaks colon Fire Walk With Me. Uh, That's an appropriately surreal opening for a movie that I think we can explain. This is, of course, the film that is maybe a prequel, maybe a sequel, maybe a something else entirely to the Twin Peaks TV series. Uh, It seems like it'll it will play into the revival somehow, which is good. So this isn't this isn't a, a, a total colossal waste of everyone's time uh jeff where 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 should we begin with this this is this is a movie that i have now watched it and several deleted scenes from it so many times that truly uh i don't know is it the future is it the past all effects of cause and reality have have started to shift around me Uh, where shall we begin with twin peaks fire walk with me well Let's kind of start with a little bit of a prologue for our listeners here. If you've been following our podcast so far, uh, you'll know that we've spent the past couple of weeks recapping the first and second seasons. And just to kind of bottom line it for everyone, right? Like, what's the story of Twin Peaks? You know, Twin Peaks is this story about this strange little town in in Washington, in northern Washington, a, that the story is catalyzed by the murder of this teenage beauty queen named Laura Palmer, who's been just murdered in a grisly fashion. And she has all of these secrets, secrets that tie into everyone in this town. And her murder brings to town Agent Dale Cooper, this quirky, mystical, very cool FBI agent. And over the course of a winding, meandering investigation, he comes to understand that Twin Peaks is uh, resides near some kind of mystical portal, some supernatural other world that's divided into maybe a couple different lodges, a black lodge, a white lodge, and it's home to all of these specters and demons that interface with people, terrorize people, uh, like... Uh, thrive on their misery or suffering, but also might be coaching them towards some kind of good. And when the series ended, Agent Cooper gets trapped, um, or at least part of him or an aspect of him gets trapped in the quote-unquote Black Lodge. And he has been replaced in the real world by his evil dark side doppelganger who seems to be inhabited or cohabitating with um, a demon named Bob. Now, this summary of Twin Peaks, Darren, is uh, for people who've watched the show, is probably really reductive. But if you've seen the movie Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, I think David Lynch would almost have you believe that Twin Peaks was all about those things. Um, and it was against the backdrop of the show's uh, very infamous flame out and demise one year later after, after the show was canceled. We get this movie that purports to be a prequel uh, to the events of Twin Peaks as opposed to a sequel uh, that might have resolved a lot of these cliffhangers. So that's the that's my prologue. That's my preamble for this movie. Darren, why don't we start by recapping briefly what's the structure and what's the plot? Why don't you take it away and kind of begin at the beginning? This film opens with this sort of close-up on a TV set. Over the course of the credit sequence, it slowly pulls out. You realize you're watching static. The credit sequence ends, and just like that, bash! The TV set gets bashed in. There is the sound of a of a woman screaming. We cut to the, if you're watching this after seeing the TV show, familiar image of a girl wrapped in plastic moving slowly down a, a babbling brook. Curiously, this is not the woman we might be expecting to see, but rather it's Teresa Banks, a fact that is actually, I believe, stated on screen in a little Chiron. We then smash cut, and this is a big movie for sudden smash cut. 
Democrats to David Lynch himself reprising his role as FBI Regional Bureau Chief Gordon Cole, sort of demanding in front of this beautiful painted backdrop that almost seems like a pastiche of the sort of Twin Peaks, Great Pacific Northwest imagery that we've become accustomed to. He's calling for a special agent named Chester Desmond. Smash cut again to Chester Desmond at the very end of what seems to be a really, really strange, like, like, like criminal action that he is putting an end to. There's this, we, we get exactly like three shots of this, but he seems to be arresting two sort of late teenage, 20 something women dressed as, shall we say, ladies of the night, but it's happening in front of a school bus. And yes. the kids on the school bus are all screaming, like like absolutely squealing. The kids seem horrified. And Special Agent Chester Desmond, who's dressed in the same sort of, like what we'll come to see in this film is really like the FBI uniform, this sort of gray trench coat. He's flanked by a bunch of other FBI guys also wearing gray trench coats, who, like, when you when you initially see it, it's, it's a very short shot. They almost seem like they're aiming their guns at the school bus. Very strange, <laughs> never really explained. Smash cut again to Special Agent Chester Desmond lands at a private uh, airport in Deer Meadow, Oregon, uh, to meet Gordon Cole and Sam Stanley, played by Kiefer Sutherland, in what I have to say is one of my favorite of his performances. Sometimes Kiefer Sutherland oh, totally. plays a badass. So, well, it, it's great. This is one of those Kiefer Sutherland performances which people forget about if they only know him from Jack Bauer, where he plays a total nerdy weirdo. Like, this is right there with, with I would say, Dark City as far as, like, oh, Kiefer Sutherland, you can play an American hero and you can also play a little rat creature man. And this is very much more <laughs> in that class of performance. And and then, Jeff, we, we get to the part of the movie that I, I have to imagine it is either your favorite part or your least favorite part, which is when uh, Gordon Cole, David Lynch himself, on screen in his own movie, turns and says, Chet, good to see you. Gordon. Chet, give Sam Stanley the glad hand. He's come over from Spokane. It's a pleasure. I've heard a lot about you. Sam's the man who cracked the Whitman case. Congratulations. I heard about that. Chet, your surprise. Her name is Lil. She's my mother's sister's girl. Federal. Good luck, Chet. Sam, you stick with Chet. He's got his own M.O. Modus operandi. You fellas can reach me in the Philadelphia offices. I'm flying out today. Yeah. When I first watched this movie, Darren, I have to admit, like, this was a, a a weirdness too far for even me and David Lynch. It actually felt to me like David Lynch trying to do David Lynch. But yeah, we have this weird moment where Cole, um, in, in, in the moment in the movie in which if this was any other movie, a normal movie about an FBI director tasking an agent to go out on a journey, go out on a mission and solve a crime, he would kind of give us a rundown of all the facts of the case and the information of the case, uh, presenting it to the detective at hand and to us. But but David Lynch doesn't do that. You know, he doesn't... <laughs> what we get instead is uh is is this woman in a dress that gives this kind of weird performance art thing that we will later learn is a, a completely coded message and we discover this because literally one scene after this sort of lil sequence agent desmond is driving in a car with agent stanley it's very clear that agent desmond let's call him chet uh, he's a little yes. more senior. He basically walks through and explains all of the symbols that Lil was sort of exhibiting to uh, Sam Stanley. That really was something with the dancing girl, wasn't it? What exactly did that mean? I'll explain it to you. Remember Lil's wearing a sour face. What do you mean? Her face had a sour look on it. We're going to have problems with the local authorities. I'm not going to be receptive to the FBI. Both eyes blinking means trouble higher up. The eye is the local authority. 
Sheriff and a deputy be my guess. You notice she had one hand in her pocket, which means they're hiding something. And the other hand made into a fist, which means they're gonna be belligerent. Lil was walking in place, which means there's gonna be a lot of legwork involved. Cole said Lil was his mother's sister's girl. Now what's missing in that sentence? The uncle. Not Cole's uncle, but probably the sheriff's uncle's in federal prison. Let me ask you something, Stanley. Did you notice anything about the dress? The dress was altered to fit her. I noticed a different colored thread where the dress was taken in. Gordon said you're good. Taylor dresses are code for drugs. Oh. You notice what was pinned to it? A blue rose? Now, we then enter into this phase of the movie that you experience it on two levels. What's happening on screen is these FBI agents are investigating the the strange case of this girl. She's been killed. They find a small piece of, of paper printed with a letter T under one of her fingernails. They go to a diner. And, and as a Twin Peaks fan, you're just recognizing that there is a certain familiarity to this and a certain offness to this. You know, we've seen this sort of FBI agent investigating a girl wrapped in plastic murder case before but now everything is a little more melancholy well frankly just like much grittier and much sadder looking the the policemen are not as kind as sheriff harry s truman was to dale cooper uh the local diner is not populated by waitresses who look like madshin amick and peggy lipton you're very aware of this feeling of there's something familiar yet off about this which really climaxes with them going to the trailer park where Teresa banks lived um and in this scene as you sort of teased in your opening uh, there's a great sequence featuring Harry Dean Stanton who is the guy who seems to kind of manage this trailer park Um, very few people seem to really live here and indeed many of the trailers that are sort of all around the park seem to be sort of boarded up and there's a real sense of just overall decay we're a long ways away from the sort of beautiful suburban homes where everyone seems to live uh, on the the Twin Peaks TV show Um, and then, you know, the, the the core mystery of this segment of the movie comes from the fact that they realize that Teresa was wearing a green ring with a, a sign on it that we may remember from the Owl Cave, uh, but which, of course, Chet and Sam have no clue w- what that is. They decide that they need to find that ring. There's sort of one last run-in with the local police. It's very clear that the local policemen are very upset with these FBI guys they don't want them to take the body agent desmond decides he's going to go back to the trailer park for just to take one more look around right like uh chet goes back to the trailer park and he's investigating these different trailers and he finds a small mound of dirt underneath a a trailer and on top of it is this green ring that has now become a recurring motif throughout all of Twin Peaks and it's about to play a very significant and even maybe kind of supernatural role in this movie itself and he goes and he kneels down and he reaches for the ring and as he's about to touch it the screen freezes and completely fades to black and at that point, the as we know it, the, the Agent Desmond story, Chet Desmond story, completely ends. It completely ends. Like this investigation into, like we're, we're getting kind of ramped up into watching it being introduced to a rather compelling character, FBI agent, played by played by Chris Isaac. He's not Agent Cooper, and that is an initial source of disappointment for anyone who's watching this show and wanting Cooper. 
but we're starting to warm to this guy. We're warming to his chemistry with Kiefer Sutherland. And um, okay, okay, we're getting our imagination captured for this quirky collection of FBI agents that work for for Gordon Cole and, uh, and, and go on these strange adventures. And just as we're kind of getting into it, just as we're making some kind of headway into this investigation, he disappears off the face of the map in the movie, and this whole section of the movie essentially ends. There's some weirdness that we need to discuss that has been interspliced, uh, interwoven into this whole section, but it just completely ends. And let, let's just kind of like dote on that for a second. That is, it, it's, it's such a, a, an interesting choice, a deliberate choice, and I'm wondering what you made of that choice, Darren. The reason why I think it's so painful is that Chris Isaac is actually pretty charming. So as you said, Jeff, you've sort of just gotten over the fact that he's not Kyle MacLachlan, and then he's gone. (laughs) But as it happens, Kyle MacLachlan as Agent Cooper is in this movie. Um, According to the the behind-the-scenes lore of the shooting of the movie, um, Lynch and his co-writer wanted... Uh, a big presence uh, for Agent Cooper in the film, and in fact, Chet Desmond. But they they originally wanted everything that had to do with Agent Desmond to be Agent Cooper. But McLaughlin, for some various reasons, uh, just really, I think he was kind of done with Twin Peaks. He wanted to be, he wanted to move on past Twin Peaks, but sort of out of loyalty to David Lynch um, and affection for him, he agreed to have a smaller role in this movie. And so we're getting these scenes that have are woven into uh, this first section of the movie, and we will get more uh, flashes of Agent Cooper later in the movie. And one of the first scenes that we get with Agent Cooper in this section of the movie is one of the most memorable and trippy and confounding things maybe I've ever seen in a movie. Um, Agent Cooper walks into uh, Director Cole's office, basically crouches down before him, like, you know, kneeling before his king and basically says, you know, Gordon, I've, I've come to you because I'm kind of concerned about you and us because of the dream that I had. And off of that kind of line, we cut to this bizarre moment where Cooper is in the hallway of FBI HQ and he's looking up at a security camera. He walks into the security room where you see all of these monitors and he looks at the camera, uh, looks at the monitor and he sees where he had been standing and it's an empty hallway. He goes back into the hallway, stands in front of the camera again. He goes back into the monitor room. He looks at the monitor. There's no one there. He goes back into the hallway, looks up at the camera, and then he goes back into the monitor room and he's there on the monitor as if he had just, you know, he was still standing out there. So is, is Cooper like in two places at once? It's, it's, it's kind of baffling. Meanwhile, we're getting these ominous shots cutting to this, this elevator and the elevator opens and Darren outwalks David Bowie. Yes, David Bowie, um, dressed as if he's just been on vacation in some South American country because he has been. And he, as we are, we'll, we'll come to find out, either in the text itself or in some cut scenes, David Bowie just walks right through the hallway, walks right past Agent Cooper. And, and just just barrels right into Director Cole's office, and Cooper just starts freaking out like, Gordon, 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 Philip, is that you? Philip? Cooper, meet the long lost Philip Jeffries. You may have heard of him from the Academy. Well, now, I'm not going to talk about Judy. In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. We're going to keep her out of it. Gordon? I know, Coop. Who do you think this is there? Suffered some bumps in the old noggin, ain't so. What the hell did he say there, Albert? That special agent Dale Cooper. For God's sakes, Jeffries, where the hell have you been? And as Jeffries is rambling about... Judy, but we're not going to talk about Judy, talking about like he has been in one of their meetings. Who is they? What is this meeting? We don't know. 
we start getting that TV crackle again, that static again, and we start seeing images that are overlaid to the scene, and we are segueing now into this apartment above a convenience store. And if you know your Twin Peaks lore, you know that 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 should be familiar to you. Um, you know, the one-armed man, Mike, talked about how he once lived with Demon Bob in an apartment on above a convenience store. And so here we are in this kind of like grungy, scrungy kind of place where all of the supernatural characters that we've come to know from Twin Peaks are residing. This must be the flop house where they lived before they moved up into better digs in the red room, right? <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. there's like, there's Bob, there's the one-armed man, there's the man from the other place, there's um, uh, Mrs. Tremond and her grandson who is wearing this very sinister mask with a pointy nose. There is a lumberjack who is slapping his knee like laughing, but it's played backwards. There's the giant, I believe. Um, And there's a couple other characters too, including another masked figure who is, is like, I think that might be the grandson, but then he takes off the mask again and it's a, it's, it's a gibbon. It's a monkey. It is a very bizarre scene. And there's not a lot of narrative information. We don't know why we're seeing it. I think the implication is that we're getting a flashback to Agent Jeffrey's infiltration of this meeting of the Twin Peaks Supernatural Monster Club. And then we cut back to the FBI headquarters and Agent Jeffries has mysteriously disappeared. He's gone. He's he, just as just as weirdly as he's entered, he's vaporized into thin air. And Cole and Cooper and Albert Rosenfeld, who's also there, are just panicking, like, where did he go? Where did he go? And it's the only hit of David Bowie we get in the film. (laughs) So we get this strange hit with David Bowie. And it is very memorable. Um, It is very weird. It's dropped into this opening sequence that is alternately frustrating but increasingly intriguing because we're getting into the character of of, of Agent Desmond. But some of these Lynchian flourishes of weirdness are both welcome or unwelcome. Regardless, coming out of this uh, bit of mysteriousness, this first section of the movie officially ends with Agent Cooper being sent to Deer Meadow to find out what happened to Agent Desmond. And he goes to the trailer park, he encounters Harry Dean Stanton, and he finds out that some of the uh, the, the trailers that that Agent Desmond was investigating are now mysteriously disappeared. And it, it should be noted, and correct me, Darren, if I'm getting the details wrong, but one of the interesting pieces of, of information that we have, uh, that we get um, rather curiously from Harry Dean Stanton's character, is that Teresa Banks lived here, but some other characters that are essential to the Twin Peaks mythology used to live here too, including, I believe, Mrs. Tremond and her grandson, although they might have been living under their other names, the Chalfonts, right? And then we also hear from him that a, a previous generation of Tremond Chalfonts used to live here, here too. So two generations of this family lived in this trailer park. I, I dote on this detail because as you kind of mentioned about this opening um, section and something that just became very vivid to me re-watching it, so closely on the heels of watching the rewatching the TV show is that there is this very deliberate echoing of the events of Twin Peaks. Deer Meadow is a complete, it's the anti-Twin Peaks, as you kind of mentioned. We are very intentionally getting scenes, scenarios, settings, characters that are, it's, it's like the bizarro world version of the Twin Peaks characters. And it's subtly done. It's something that I didn't notice watching it the first time, except spiritually speaking. I mean, you definitely get the vibe that, wow, this is, we are, we're not in Twin Peaks anymore. And so we're 
we're getting this theme that you get from the rest of the film is that the dramas of Twin Peaks, the horrors of Twin Peaks operate on some kind of cyclical cycle in various places, perhaps all around the world. And maybe they latch on to places that have similar motifs or generate similar scenarios. Um, And so the idea that there might be multiple generations of this family that lived here like you get the sense that a, a kind of drama has been playing out in this town over time um, as it might have been playing out in repeated cycles in Twin Peaks, as it might have been playing out in repeated cycles in other places around the world conceivably. So that's the reason why I kind of bore you with that little bit of mythological trivia. We don't know for certain because like a lot of stuff in this movie that kind of uh, flicks at the the mythology of Twin Peaks, it, peaks, it really is a flick. It's like a, just a little bit of data. Um, sometimes it's buried in the sound mix um, or it's just an image and it's supposed to try to capture your imagination for the greater whole. So Agent Cooper comes, he looks for, for, for Agent Desmond, he finds trailers are missing, he finds Desmond is missing, but he finds Agent Desmond Desmond's car and his his abandoned FBI cruiser and uh, a spray painted on the windshield is the are the words let's rock which of course is the famous saying of the man from the other place and this section of the film ends with Cooper talking to his tape recorder to Diane and kind of offering some big picture thoughts about the strangeness of this case and he kind of makes this he offers his sense that perhaps that there's a serial killer at loose here and that he just has this sinking feeling that something is going to happen again. And that's when we finally end this section and cut to Twin Peaks. Smash cut to Twin Peaks population, uh, whatever the number is of the population <laughs> that I should know by now, because I've seen that sign so many goddamn times. Um, the opening <laughs> music, Angelo Badalamenti's perfect opening music from the TV series starts to play. But intriguingly, we cut from that very familiar, you know, almost like, you know, entry shot into Twin Peaks right into a following shot that is sort of moving in front of a character who we know and love and have always been fascinated by Laura Palmer played by Cheryl Lee in the flesh still alive she's blonde we know she's not a cousin or a duplicate or anything like that Uh, she's walking to school and it quickly becomes clear to us that we are seeing many of the characters from the TV show in the days right before the death of Laura Palmer one of them looks a bit different uh, because her best friend Donna is played by Moira Kelly instead of Laura Flynn Boyle. But certainly the main setting and main character focus of this film from here is Laura Palmer. And we see this intriguing attempt to bring together everything that we learned about her from the TV show into what feels like this almost like day by day, you know, sunrise, sunset look at her life. And very quickly that means we see her you know deeply ensconced in in an affair with James but she's also dating Bobby and Bobby is actively focused on on getting her more cocaine and we see her hang out with uh the guy with agoraphobia and we see her hang out with you know people after hours we see she seems to never really sleep except when she does sleep and then her dreams are truly haunting and strange and seem to be filled with premonitions the main sort of establishing, if you want to say, dynamic of this segment of the movie is that she is very afraid of this figure named Bob. She establishes that th- this Bob character, this 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 larger-than-life figure, this, th- this demonic presence in her life has been assaulting her and raping her since she was a very young girl. Uh, and essentially, she very quickly discovers that uh, the person who Bob has taken over or who Bob actually is. And we'll, we'll, we'll discuss what this all, <laughs> we'll try to kind of parse out what the nature of this sort of persona actually is. But basically, it is in fact her father, Leland, uh, played by Ray Wise in what I have to say, even coming from the TV series, where he spent many of his scenes uh, either doing silent comedy pastiche or just crying. Uh, this is the absolute high point of Ray Wise 
just playing Leland as this extremely bizarre and simultaneously fascinating but off-putting figure. I guess one thing that I would kind of like to skip to, Jeff, although I have to stress that just each scene with Laura, you're really seeing these different sides of her personality and you're seeing how she is sort of simultaneously this beloved figure, but her home life is very, very strange and what she does after hours seems very, very opposite from how she lives her life in the daytime. Um, she has this a dream which seems to most completely connect what's happening to her with what we kind of would recognize as the Twin Peaks mythology. And in the dream, she seems to be sort of going to the Black Lodge. She sees the man from another place. She sees this green ring that, 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 that we recognize, of course, came from Teresa. The man from another place is there, but strangely so is Agent Cooper. Uh, the man from another place, initially he's talking to Cooper. This is the scene when he tells Cooper that he is, quote, the arm, which many people interpret to, to mean, and I'm just going to say this because I don't know how else to say this, uh, to mean that the man from another place is the arm that the one-armed man cut off, which makes exactly <laughs> as much sense as most everything else happening. He then sort of, sort of offers the ring, having told this to Agent Cooper, who is in the Black Lodge, having said, with this ring, I V wed, he offers the ring towards the camera, sort of offering it to us, it almost seems like. Then Dale turns to us and says, don't take the ring, Laura. And so what we're feeling right now and, and what I would stress is maybe an important keystone for this movie or also just maybe an example of how it kind of is situating us with the character of Laura Palmer is that as much as we are sort of watching her and watching how other characters are sort of objectifying her and everyone on screen seems to be in love with her, we are also very much in this dream sequence focalized through her eyes. We are sort of with her. And I, I find that to be a helpful way to maybe decode this movie. Um, she then wakes up in bed. She sees Annie Blackburn, a.k.a. Heather Graham, lying next to her. Annie says that the good Dale is trapped in the lodge and can't leave. We're just, you know, again, coming to this from Twin Peaks, we're just seeing this strange collapsing of what we know happened before the show started and what seems to be happening after the show started. Then, you know... <laughs> After all of this, so we're, we're with this character and even putting aside the, the extre extremely strange sort of supernatural elements that are floating around her. What's also, I think, most clear is that she's just a, a person who is really falling apart at the seams. Uh, she's, she has snorted more cocaine than all the guys in The Wolf of Wall Street combined. Um, you know, we <laughs> see her go to, uh, in, a, in, in a sequence that I think is really the love or hate it pivotal turning point of the movie and I, I should say that I totally love it but I, I understand the opposing view she goes to this bar we see Julie Cruz as always singing a song written by Angelo Badalamenti probably with lyrics by David Lynch she's in the bar Donna's there with her uh, there's this sort of prostitution element that is happening and this is when I remembered that Jacques Renault was a character but then they go out and there's a sequence where Donna seems to essentially be trying to help her friend by being just as, you know, debauched as she is. And Laura kind of rescues Donna and says, you know, don't end up like me. It's this whole lengthy sequence, lots of nudity, uh, lots of drugs, lots of just sort of early 90s strobe light-ish type orgiastic uh, late Studio 54 era stuff going on. Real fun stuff, <laughs> Jeff. And while this is happening, we're also kind of following along with her father, Leland. And I find some of that stuff to be, you know, as much as this is Laura's movie, I do think that the intention of the film is also to kind of cast light on him. How do you kind of feel like that sort of plays off against what's going on with his daughter? Leland is an intense, important character in this in this movie his his entry into the movie and the emphasis that the movie places on him creates one more sort of disruption in the narrative we begin with the mystery of of Teresa Banks 
and we see it through Chester Desmond. We then cut to Laura, and now the the movie shifts to a major new character in, in Leland. And these sort of like shifts in focus and these disruptions kind of contribute to a mo- to the frustrations of the movie, um, but also kind of helps lend the, the, the crazy personality of the movie and the, the chaotic personality of the movie that reflects the, the chaos that's going on in the characters. Leland is incoherent. He's confusing. He's shifting personalities radically. Sometimes he's in control of himself. Sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's aware of his duality. Sometimes he's not. And this is this can be kind of frustrating for the audience, frustrating for me, but I think that what I'm actually feeling is exactly what Lynch wants me to feel with Leland. He is incoherent. He is confused. He is deeply disturbed. So my negative feelings, perhaps, are exactly what I'm supposed to be feeling about Leland. Leland does something for the film that is very important, at least artistically or in, in, in creating a sense of unity. It, he pays off the mystery of Teresa Banks from the beginning. The, that storyline is abandoned abruptly, but Leland finishes it off. Through him, we understand that Leland, Bob, killed Teresa Banks. So like the, the film, the storytelling like delivers and pays off what, what the storytelling needs to do. There, I think there's some Lynch is doing something else that's really interesting with Leland in the movie, which is that I think that he's remystifying Leland and Bob and he's making he's making it strange again and disturbing again and more open to interpretation than say the TV show, which introduces this really confusing idea of demon possession and duality that it, that it never really got a chance to unpack. And maybe the new show will, but I'm not sure if Lynch really loved the way that the show presented the relationship between Leland and Bob and, or maybe he didn't necessarily love the way that kind of turned into some sort of like concrete occult mythology. So what the movie does is something really interesting, which is that it, it it makes it mysterious again. It makes it something that's open to interpretation. Is Leland really possessed by demon Bob? Is demon Bob some elaborate rationalization and fiction that he's made up in his mind to reconcile his own evil? Is Bob the invention of Laura? Is he psychological or supernatural? All of these things are are back in play. And I think that's kind of like the space where I think maybe Lynch would prefer that that this mystery lives, regardless of what Lynch's intention, that's how I kind of read it. So it makes it murky again, which is frustrating, but also interesting. One other thing I would say about Leland and what he does for the movie in general and this whole storyline involving themes of incest, sexual abuse, disassociative amnesia, all of these tricky things and disturbing things. It really speaks to a moment of time. This film came out in 1992, and there's always been an aspect of Lynch's work that I love to think about based on other things that he said in the past, about how his movies are a response to what's going on in the culture, what's going on um, like in, in the American character. And, and this was an interesting time in 91, 92, and Twin Peaks, the series captures this too, where the whole idea of sexual abuse and child abuse was was a very hot topic and, and greatly debated because of all sort of, uh, sorts of sub-issues, including the whole issue of repressed memory. And um, sexual abuse and incest and all of these things, I can't believe our podcast is talking about this, but like there was a greater awareness to these things and we were talking about these things. And... As part of that, there was a there's another conversation taking place about this whole phenomenon of, of of repressed memories, and it's also being played out in this weird, rash, moral panic of satanic ritual abuse. There's an aspect in which Lynch responding to 
themes and evil in the culture and stories about evil in the culture that are compromising and confusing the whole idea of, of, of American character and American values and family values and all those kinds of things that he liked to interrogate and poke at in Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me kind of re- reflects that and honors that. I know that's a, a mix of ideas. I see all of that reflected in the incoherent chaotic, troubling, disturbing mess that is Leland Palmer, the tragedy of Leland Palmer. And he frustrates, but he's also interesting to think about. And let's let's sort of dive into what is for me the single most confusing part of the movie. And I, you know, I, I might even yes. say that like one of my favoriteest things now that I am sort of an adult and I very often feel as if I, you know, know so many things, but also like, you know, can feel weary of stuff. Being confused by entertainment is one of my favorite things now. I, I, I love that sort of feeling yes. of like... I don't want to say like needing to work for it because that's not quite the feeling that I'm going for, but the feeling of just being like enthralled by and tantalized by, but also flummoxed by something. That's, that's a good feeling that, that to me is something that I chase, but when I feel as if there is something I'm supposed to be getting and I'm not getting it, that is when, you know, brain rebels and I start saying like, ah, like this isn't, you know, this isn't fun and I, and I don't get it. And for me, the, the difficulty with that is that comes right at the end of the movie. Uh, you know, as you kind of said, we're, we're, we zero in closer and closer on Laura's last night. We sort of see her steadily kind of breaking things off with everyone and you know again it doesn't take too much to realize that what we're really seeing is her saying goodbye to many of the people in her life then you know almost with this sort of totemic inevitability we see the sequence where she is going to be killed by her father the scene sort of cuts between Leland and Bob they both seem to be there maybe you know inhabiting the same vessel maybe not uh but then meanwhile the the part of the film that works for me the least just because it is the most oddly framed within this already extremely odd movie. We've sort of followed along with the one-armed man, Mike or Philip Gerard or whatever you want to call him. He sort of arrives right outside of the train car where, you know, it seems as if, and this is me constructing after the fact from copious research, you know, what Laura thinks is going to happen is that she's going to be killed. In fact, what Bob says is that he, is that he wants to possess her. Then you sort of see Mike outside of the car. He throws the green ring in. Laura puts the ring on uh, and then Leland kills her. Now, now, again, sort of constructing this after the fact from copious research, what seems to be happening is that Bob wants to possess her. Somehow the ring's presence, because she's wearing the ring, he can't possess her, so instead she dies. There is then an extraordinarily dense sequence where Leland goes to the Red Room, and Leland is there, and he's floating, and Bob is there. This is where uh, the man from another place for the second time in the movie mentions something about wanting Garmin Bosia, which, as near as I can tell, is sort of the midichlorians of the Twin Peaks mythology. <laughs> I'm, I'm not that that may be that may be being like being really really cruel to be kind, but like the Garmin Bosia, I think, is sort of this physical food for these supernatural entities. Uh, Garmin Bosia is pain and sorrow. So what they're after is pain and sorrow. After this remarkably dense scene, which as I think more about it, might just literally be David Lynch explaining everything about Twin Peaks. You know, we sort of see Laura's body floating down the water. We're, We're leaving her body right back where we found her. We're also circling right back to the beginning of this movie with a different body floating down the river. Uh, meanwhile, in what we may as well call the Black Lodge, for lack of a more obvious definition, uh, we see Laura. She is there. 
She's there with Agent Cooper and this sort of angel that, you know, she'd sort of looked to that was a painting on her wall earlier. This angel that had disappeared for her while she was alive has now reappeared. And so there we leave them, Jeff. And and th- there we left Twin Peaks forever, we might have thought a few years ago. And I guess to sort of zero in on something, and maybe this plays into what you were just talking about, I, let, let's discuss this film as a final statement as you know david lynch end of season two could have made anything with twin peaks in the title he made this what how do you feel about this as a sort of quote-unquote if not a narrative finale then certainly a thematic finale and and maybe you know to get down to it what do you think lynch's intentions were with making this movie Yeah, David Lynch has said that the reason why he wanted to make this movie was that he was not yet ready to leave Twin Peaks behind. And so from that point of view, I sort of interpret this movie largely as how David Lynch feels about the thing that was Twin Peaks, um, the phenomenon, the story, and the characters that meant something to him, the qualities of the story that meant something to him, and ultimately the failed, unfinished, tragic thing that Twin Peaks became by, by the end after just two short seasons. And from that perspective, that's how I largely feel and think about this whole movie. And I think that that theme, that idea about David Lynch's almost like grief and mourning over the demise of this beautiful thing of an ongoing, never-ending mystery that was the Twin Peaks serial ending too soon is established by that opening shot that you describe. And when we open tight on that TV static, although we don't really know it's TV static, and we hear this sad saxophone wail, and the camera starts to pull out as we get these credits rolling, and we understand that it's a TV. And then we see the axe being brought down and crushing the TV. And it's an image that we'll later uh, come to understand, I believe, being Leland Palmer uh, destroying Teresa Banks's uh, hotel room and killing her, I believe. But regardless, we get this sort of out of context shot of this TV being crushed and then we hear screams. And for me, that just a whole metaphor for the thing that was Twin Peaks, this, this TV show that was cut down too soon, you know, and and that the whole movie then is end up being framed by Lynch's sort of regard for this. I don't know if he's conscious of this or is designed by this. I, I actually don't think it's by design, but that's ultimately what the thing becomes. The first half hour is this really increasingly intriguing mystery involving character archetypes that Lynch loves, the detective, you know, and he makes them cool and he makes them interesting and he makes them extrapolations of himself and his own kind of quirky sensibilities and worldview. And just as that mystery is about to take off, just as we're falling in love with that character, the story abruptly ends. And that must be something that like Lynch kind of felt about Twin Peaks itself. And he's said in interviews since then that one of one of many regrets that he had about the thing that Twin Peaks became was how the the, the character of Agent Cooper comes off like gangbusters, but then gets starts losing his way and gets fuzzy toward the middle of the second season um, as Kyle's performance fluctuates and as the story fails to give him really great material and Agent Cooper sort of loses his way. And I just feel like that whole opening sequence is that this sort of requiem for this character that goes nowhere and has become, you know, like decoheres. And the fact that it's now played, that we're, we're experiencing that kind of those themes through a different character, Agent Desmond, seems almost fitting in, in terms of the lost promise that was Agent Cooper. The movie that we saw ultimately was not the movie that was written and was shot. Um, this movie is like over two hours long, but I think the first cut was reportedly close to five hours. And a couple of years ago, David Lynch actually gave us about a good solid hour of deleted scenes from this movie which uh, have a lot more Laura Palmer, but there's a lot more individual little vignette scenes with a lot of supporting characters from Twin Peaks. 
um, that are equally kind of mournful and curious. So what you get the sense is that the original design of this movie, the word that I keep on coming back to, Darren, is requiem. Like the, the complete version of Twin Peaks that he wrote, uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, that he wrote and shot, if it could exist in its like three and a half to five and a half hour form, sort of would have been this like mysterious opening mystery with uh, Agent Desmond. And then once we get into the Twin Peaks portion of the movie is this story of Laura Palmer and her father as they sort of uh, spiral out of control and lead to their final uh, violence against each other, or at least Leland's violence against Laura. But it sounds like the design of the movie was is that during that narrative arc, we would get these cutaways to all of these different characters of Twin Peaks and check in with them. So it just seems like what he wanted this movie to be was this elaborate, mournful requiem and check-in one last time with all of these characters and celebrate them, enjoy them, grieve them, but not resolve them. Because from his point of view, that would be dishonest. Twin Peaks was a TV series. It wasn't a movie. And it ended before it finished. And now I kind of want to move us in a little bit to theories about the film, because uh, I, I know that you, Jeff, in particular, have a sort of theory that you've kind of focused in on as something that that is either a kind of decoder ring or just a, a deeper analytical level of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Do you want to kind of explain that that theory to us? Yeah, and I and I offer it more in the spirit of people who might be discovering this movie and watching it uh, definitely after having seen the series. Um, And if you're watching the film and you're maybe a little frustrated by it, this is a theory that I actually think works um, that changes the way that you look at the film, but doesn't change the film itself, which is that I view, and it's very specifically about the opening section with Agent Desmond, which is that I view it all as the dream of Agent Cooper. Um, The key line in that opening section is when Agent Cooper goes to Director Cole and says, I have to tell you about the strangest dream I had last night. And there's all of these musical cues throughout the opening section that is, that is playing on, on stereos and in diners and stuff. And if you go and research those songs, you will find that they are all songs about dreams. Um, and there is just very explicit reference to dreams too. So the idea of this theory, and I have to stress, Darren, I thought it was a completely original theory that I was having, but I would later find out that many hardcore Twin Peaks fans have theorized this well before me. But the idea is, is that all of this opening sequence, you could almost see it as this is the dr- a dream that Agent Cooper had like the night before he drove into Twin Peaks. In, in this theory, um, imagine that he is picturing himself and he's cast himself in the, in a different role, the role of agent Desmond. I mean, as we often do when we dream, we often imagine ourselves being different people, but this is all a dream of agent Cooper. And it's, he's confabulating a little fantasy with memories of investigating the Teresa Banks case through some sort of precognitive intuition about what's about to happen to him in the town of Twin Peaks. And I think that if you engage all of the Cooper scenes in this movie, particularly one that I believe happens in the middle of the Laura Palmer narrative, where we cut back to Agent Cooper, like in Philadelphia somewhere, and he's telling Albert, you know, I... I have this sense that this killer is going to strike again. And Albert, in this rare act of grace and affection for Agent Cooper, says, okay, let's just take this crazy thought of yours seriously for a second. Like, what do you see in your dream? Who who is going to be the next victim? And all the things that Cooper says in that moment, you get the sense that he's intuited them from the opening section of the movie. And the only way that he could intuited them from the opening section of the movie is that if he experienced the entire opening section of the movie. And the only way that he could have experienced that is if it was a dream. So that's the theory that I have about the opening section. I think that, and I, and I want to just give a shout out credit where credit is due. I'm elaborating 
upon a theory, really. All I had from watching the movie is, oh, I think this is a dream. <laughs> and um, I think this is Agent Cooper's dream. And then I would find this beautiful essay written by John Thorne, one of the great Twin Peaks scholars who uh, published the magazine Wrapped in Plastic. And I found an essay from the final issue of Wrapped in Plastic. It's now like one of my favorite things ever, in which he elaborates very extensively on the idea of that opening section of the dream. And I think he's totally right. Um, but I I think that might converge with a theory that you were telling me about when you were watching it and texting it about this maybe being the shared dream of Cooper and Laura Palmer. Yeah, I mean, like I, I, I will just say, uh, as I, as I expected, the, the more you talked about your theory, the more that I bought into it more than my own theory. At least in part because that scene later on in the film that you're describing, where you kind of cut back to Dale Cooper and he's describing with uncanny accuracy what's happening in Laura Palmer's life, even though if we accept that narratively everything's happening in reality at that point, always a difficult thing to accept that you know he has no idea about her. That oddly adds this new layer to the film that I hadn't thought of. Like, is he sort of dreaming about her? Is this him maybe dreaming about Laura Palmer? Is this whole Laura Palmer segment some weird kind of total recall dream where he's constructing this vision of her? We've we've talked about the possibility that he may fall in love with her over the course of the TV show. So, so maybe that's all happening. M- my own interpretation of it comes entirely from the fact that there is this sort of collision of future and past at at one point the man from another place literally says is it the future is it the past Laura seems to be sort of experiencing Dale Cooper even though she never meets him before she dies Dale Cooper in turn seems to be sort of experiencing these moments that happen to someone who looks a lot like him but isn't isn't quite him so my own theory is this is all happening after the Twin Peaks TV show and it's kind of them together in the Black Lodge, that moment that we end on between the two of them, this you know girl who, who is dead, this man who seems to have been irrevocably cut off from himself. And it's almost kind of them communicating their two stories. I, I do think that the one element of this theory that plays into what you're talking about is it really splits the movie along the lines of this is Dale's story, his origin story, if you want to sort of go with that, and this is Laura's story. And the fact that at the end of the movie, there is this really beautiful and oddly happy feeling, even though everything about it on a narrative level is extremely sad and depressing. This moment of them being together in the lodge, seeing this angel, experiencing some sort of higher epiphany. You know, if you take the sort of deep story that all along this has been the love story between Dale Cooper and Laura Palmer, admittedly an extraordinarily deep subterranean narrative to unpack, then that sort of seems to be this coming together of the two of them, this mutual understanding. So that so that's my theory, Jeff. It's not one dream, it's two dreams, and they're both memories, and they're being shared by two people in a supernatural space. I, I think there's evidence of that. I think you can easily tease that out <laughs> upon your first viewing. <laughs> Right. But you know what? Like, I think that there is some validity to what you're saying, even if I don't know if I completely agree with it or if it makes a lot of sense. Not that David Lynch films really need to make a lot of sense to be effective. But I do believe that there, and I'm my my Twin Peaks memory is slightly uh, fading here. But I believe that there is a moment in the middle of the second season where Agent Cooper very clearly establishes something rather mysterious, a mysterious connection that he has with Laura, is that he ha- comes to the belief that he and Laura have dreamed the same dreams, and he's perplexed by that and he's curious by that there is the show definitely suggests in some offhanded ways that i don't expect most viewers to latch on to that there is some sort of psychic connection between these two people and because you know laura was completely victimized by supernatural forces and because Agent Cooper seems to be mystically attenuated to them and attuned to them. This makes some sort of sense. Um, And you, you touched on another theme that I'm really obsessed with, and maybe we'll get a chance to unpack more when we start recapping the the new TV series, because maybe the show will, will, will tackle this. But 
you know, in a way that perhaps we have not sufficiently examined here in this podcast so far, I do think that there is this theme, this idea about Agent Cooper, as much as we admire him as a hero and as an investigator and as maybe the ultimate David Lynch, you know, like, you know, knight and crusader and detective, there is this darkness to him. There is this obsessiveness to him. There is this openness to maybe forbidden knowledge that can lead him into some dark, damning roads. And this whole idea that um, not unlike uh, the character that Kyle MacLachlan played in Jeffrey Beaumont, where curiosity mixing with some good intentions, mixing with some you know lack of self-mastery over himself and who he is and maybe being out of touch with his true desires, he falls into a mystery and it gets him in a lot of trouble. This is all to say that I am intrigued by this theory that there is something about this case first with Teresa Banks and then with Laura Palmer that captures his imagination maybe too much and he becomes obsessed with it. He even falls in love with, if you will, whatever it is that Laura Palmer represents to him, much in the same way that I think that Laura Palmer means something to David Lynch. And David Lynch and Cooper is David Lynch's alter ego on screen. So it makes sense that he would become like weirdly obsessed with Laura Palmer in a way that maybe he doesn't understand. And that the idea that that leads to this dark dead end where he is literally trapped within in this hellish like underworld of the Black Lodge and then he's been replaced by someone evil. That's very Lynchian. You know, that's very Blue Velvet. That is, you know, even though Blue Velvet then like, you know, bends back towards some kind of redemptive ending, um, the, the, the arc of Blue Velvet is Jeffrey Beaumont becoming curious and intrigued by this dark mystery. And then it leads to d- him doing dark things. Um, and he has to find some way to both scramble out of it and then do right by the people that he's suddenly become attached to, um, that he's helping slash exploiting, uh, specifically Isabella Rossellini's character. So there is this romance with mystery that leads to nightmare and self-knowledge and damnation that is sort of like uh, that, 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 that recurs throughout Lynch's work. Um, and I'm I'm curious to see that I think that this movie kind of touches on and it'll be interesting to see how it's played out moving forward and how it resolves in the new series. Well, Jeff, uh, I can't think of a better place to leave off. We are very excited. We are just one week away from experiencing the Twin Peaks revival. In a few days, we're going to release a short mini episode. Who knows how long that's going to be where we just really tee up. What little we know about the revival, what we're expecting from the revival, how much will the trailer park from Fire Walk With Me factor into the revival? Hopefully quite a bit, because we all love Harry Dean Stanton. People out there, we've just given you our super hot theories about Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. We assume you have your own. We'd love to hear from you about the new season, about your feelings about what we've already experienced with Twin Peaks. You can email us at twinpeaks@ew.com or tweet at us. People have already started tweeting at us. This is so exciting. The show hasn't even started yet. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich. We're all living in a dream, or maybe it's inside of a TV set that's being broken open by an axe. Who knows? Twin Peaks starts up this Sunday. We'll be back here later in the week with a mini episode, and next week we begin recapping the Twin Peaks revival on Showtime.